Welcome to Intelligogy with Tracy Browder, where together we will disrupt educational normalcy. I am so happy to have one of my favorite guests here. I have with us today on Stephen on Saturday, Stephen Hurley. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Tracy. Do you have a whole list of Stephens there that you're going to be calling on over the next year? <laughs> or just me? Only you. This is all about you. <laughs> now, when you said my, one of my favorite, Ed, um, don't let Che Chaining hear you say that because he will, he will get jealous. Well, too bad. <laughs> I love Che. <laughs> we all love Che. Yes, yes. Um, so thank you, Stephen, for being here. And listeners, let me tell you just a little bit about Stephen. If you want to learn a whole lot about Stephen, he's been on the podcast, I think, twice, Stephen. Is that right? I think, I think this is my third time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stephen is the chief catalyst at Voice Ed Radio. And if you have not checked out Voice Ed Radio, you are missing out. And I'll let Stephen tell a little bit about that, but he has a vast educational background, um, educational consultant, and just really a, um, a catalyst for change. He might be the chief catalyst for Voice Ed Radio, but I see him as a visionary catalyst who believes in inspiring other educators to tap into their full potential. What what goals do they have? What, what, what dreams do they have? What do they want to accomplish? And Stephen is an excellent mentor and, and guider and facilitator and kind of pushes you and stretches you beyond your perceived limitations. And of course, I'm saying that from personal experience. <laughs> Um, So that being said, and it's all true, I I have so much admiration for you, Stephen. Um, Can you tell listeners some things that I may have missed all about Stephen Hurley? Well, uh, I, you know, I'm 62 years. I had to actually, am I 62? I had to ask uh, Siri the other day how old I was um, because I couldn't remember (laughs) And, uh, and she came back with not only how old I was, but how many days I'd been alive. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's a lot of days. Uh, when you put it like that, huh? I wonder I'm so tired. Uh, no, but I'm bristling these days at, uh, at introductions uh, that I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's not, it's not a false sense of humility. It's just that uh, I think our lives are so rich uh, and so deep, no matter what we do, that sometimes when someone describes you in a certain way, I, I, I kind of pull back and say, oh, hmm. That, so that introduction was very generous and very interesting. Um, of all the things I've done in the world, I think the the thing that I was worst at was being an education consultant. So it's interesting you picked up on that one. Um, <laughs> I think I was best at being a classroom teacher and I was better at being a classroom teacher in my last five years of teaching than I was in my first five years of teaching, uh, which probably meant it was a good time to, to leave the profession. So I think I've been retired for, uh, I think this is my seventh year of retirement or eighth year, I can't remember. And um, But I'm still passionately involved and I use passion in the in the original sense of the word uh, which means to suffer uh, and so I'm still suffering through uh, you know these conversations about education change and change in general I think uh, education I'm learning and maybe we can talk a bit about it um, uh, I'm learning that education sits inside a larger ecosystem and unless we're 
communicating with, acknowledging, and reaching out beyond the walls of education to that ecosystem, um, then I think we're missing a big part of the change solution and conversation. Oh, Stephen, I, I think you just nailed it. You know, um, we talk in societal societal terms about being in a bubble, but the institution of education itself, me included, can be guilty of living with inside, with, within the walls of the bubble. And so my question to you is, how do educators, first of all, thank you for shedding some awareness to our listeners, how do we grow and, and, and stretch and challenge ourselves to step outside of the bubble? I think it has to be intentional. I think there's got to be a level of an intentionality to that and a level of commitment to that because uh, some of the conversations uh, that you have when you get outside uh, th that part of the ecosystem, and everybody lives in a bubble. Everybody needs to live in a in a bubble to a certain degree. Otherwise, there's just too much going on and you can't take it all in. So it's kind of a protective thing. It's how big is your bubble, I guess. And mm -hmm. and how clean is the um is the glass on the bubble? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it get be, it gets kind of murky and uh, then our vision is is uh, not as good as it and clear as it could be. I'm thinking of that jo Johnny Nash song. Um, I can see clearly now. Um, <laughs> the rain has come. <laughs> the rain has gone. The pain is gone. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, but I think it's it has to be intentional. So one of the things that I do, and everybody has a, a different way of doing it, um, I reach out to people on social media after reading uh, an article they've read, uh, written, or a book they they've written. Um, not to not to bring them on and necessarily promote the book, but promote the ideas and the thinking because, you know, you read a journal article or a news magazine article, even a newspaper article, you, you got you got to understand that there's been a lot of hours of research and and work that's gone into that. That's that's what I want to get to. I want to get to that thinking. Um, so it it means uh, reaching out to people that maybe aren't part of your. Uh, your stream that may be not even part of the way you're thinking. Um, and I think that's what, I think that's what the whole, I'm learning the whole conversation about freedom of expression um, really means. Uh, it's, it's not, I can say whatever the heck I want and nobody can do anything about it, but I can not only say what's on my mind, but I can listen to what's on other people's minds and allow that to mix around in my own thinking and impact me and the conversation changes. So, um, so one of the, one of the things I do is I read, I try to read, um, a, a journal a research article on education, uh, uh, every day or every couple of days. And the first thing I do when I'm done is I'll reach out to the author of that and say, can we have a conversation? And they always say yes. Wow. Because they're not used to being asked. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Stephen, that's one thing I really, I, I said I have admiration for you, and I do. And, and one of those pieces is your thirst for learning, your thirst for engaging with um, diverse people, diverse topics. You love having diverse conversation and just you really immerse yourself in the metacognitive piece of, of growth. And so that's fascinating to me. 
Um, and, and you mentioned something else, um, the, the educational research. And as, as a young educator, and I, I do believe, Stephen, this is a, wow, we're, we're about to go in a tiny, not a different direction, but a, an, an offshoot, so to speak. Okay. I, I wonder if we're missing the mark when we're preparing educators at the university level. And what I mean by that is really talking about like really talking about the pedagogy. I, I know there's a, there's a lot of talk about the developmental stages of children and, and really understanding the whole child, but are we missing something going deeper with the pedagogy and how to stay connected with the pedagogy as you continue through your profession? Yeah, what, what, what are your th- what's your thinking on that? Is that a rhetorical question? Well, it was it was tossed at you, but okay. I, I'll, I'll I'll toss it back at me. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think you you've said so much that kind of inspired the question, and and I'm going to hop back to something you said. You said that um, you feel like you were better in the last five years of your teaching career than in the first five years, and. I think that comes with growth and that thirst for learning that you have and that thirst for um, staying abreast of research. And that that's how we grow and change because I can't be in my classroom um, in 2001 and still be in my classroom in 2020 and not understand research-based best practices and not stay current. So are we having enough of those conversations? No, you know what? I don't think we are. And I think, um, I think that what I, what I'm seeing is that research of all types, all shapes and sizes in all disciplines, um, runs the risk of being, uh, used for specific purposes. And even, even some of it is being weaponized, uh, to, you know, to support a particular ideology. And I think that's dangerous. I think, and, and, and I don't think we can, I don't think anyone can be totally objective, uh, in, in what they do, but, uh, we tend to think of science and education research, you know, scientists will argue whether education research is actually scientific or not. Um, but I think we strive towards that sort of objectivity, uh, but we also, and in talking to researchers, also need to recognize that no researcher ever does research. Uh, I shouldn't say ever. Most researchers don't do research in order to make teaching practice better. Most researchers that I've spoken to do research in order to understand um, human development and, and learning, to name a couple, better. And if that impacts the way we teach, then fine. But no researcher said, I want to, uh, no researcher ever said, I want to improve grade one uh, teaching practice in language arts. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's why they they do it. Um, they do it for another reason and we can benefit from that. But I think right. we have, to, I think sometimes, uh, you know, in, in looking for the research and I've been guilty of it so many times. You look for the research to support the the ideas that you have and what you want to do. So, as an example, I was, I was uh, in my last five years of teaching, I was responsible for designing and implementing an integrated cross disciplinary arts program for grade seven and eight students, and I got to teach it. And 
in order to make the case to the district and to the principal of what I wanted to do, I looked for research uh, that would support the idea that this type of program would impact, uh, well, I knew it would impact students in a healthy way. They wanted evidence that it was going to impact uh, test scores. So I looked for that research and I didn't agree necessarily with the premise of looking for the research, but I needed to do that. So I think, I think that's why I say education research is sometimes weaponized and weaponized is a strong term, but uh, we, we look, look for, you know, evidence-based, well, an evidence base for our practice. Uh, And, and it's a, it's a bit of a dance, I think, right? You're absolutely right, and and you know, as you said that you sparked, <laughs> you sparked some some experiences that I've had in terms of doing the research, reading multiple periodicals. <clears throat> Excuse me for just a moment. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've I've always. I, I totally believe in the importance of um, students not just sitting at a desk all day long. We don't we don't function best. We don't work at our best capacity um, if we're sitting at a desk all day long. And I know there are some jobs that that's that's the nature of the beast. But ideally, especially in the learning mode or the learning realm, you learn by experience and by doing. And so one thing I've really always been passionate about is um, all the conversation around recess and, and so many administrators wanting to are thinking that the recess piece and, and the play-based learning is not important. And there's so much that comes out of recess, play-based learning, even inquiry-based learning. It, it's, it's, the, it's the socialization and, and the thinking and the interacting between students. And it's not always about the teacher facilitating the content. Sometimes we have to be willing to step back. But then, like you said, Stephen, there's always the, the big push and the big concern ultimately for um, testing and scores and student performance in that realm. But I also wonder if COVID-19 will shift, will, will, will change the mindset. We, we've proven that, well, the research is still out there, but we're proving that kids can still learn without standardized testing. We, we, we've kind of proved that. So, and, and that's what I mean by the research is still out because we still have to go back into school next year, but we have still been teaching and students have still been learning. I feel like more so um, without the push and the pressure of a test. So what do you think about that? Do you, do, do you foresee, I, I know we've just kind of shifted again, sorry. <laughs> Shifting Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> we'll call it the shift. <laughs> I like that because we do that well. Um, so what do you think when we, when we go back to school, have you had any forward thinking around what does standardized testing even look like when we return to school? And and we don't even know how the return to school looks, but when we do go back, what are your thoughts around standardized testing? Well, I, I think, in, you know, if we have the courage to even pull at a couple of the threads that have been laid bare during this time, and they're not even threads, they're big threads. I mean, like uh, the equity piece and the, uh, and the, um, uh, the, the, the learning piece and, and the access piece, they're all kind of 
um, woven into you know what some people have called fault lines or fissures. If we have the courage to address those, then I think the conversation it's going to be a while before the conversation actually gets to standardized tests. And I think in most cases, in most jurisdictions that I know and I've been following, standardized tests um, weren't instituted to improve learning. I think standardized tests were instituted to improve accountability. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they basically, for me as a teacher said, we don't trust that you can make the decisions about what to teach, when to teach and how to teach. So we're going to put this little carrot in front of you and uh, you're going to have to uh, grab for that. And I think it's it's been so long since we've had the conversation about why standardized tests that we've lost sight of of everything else that was happening around in the development of that accountability movement. And, and there were teacher standards and there were curriculum standards. And, uh, you know, it was, but I think it, and, and I'm not saying that those standards and, and a a standard, uh, idea of what should be taught, uh, isn't important, but to make standardized testing, the goal of your school year and the, and the results of those to be, the uh, the prize, I think, is is wrong. And so, coming out of COVID nineteen, I think what we're going to find, and this is an aspirational thought, I'm just going to throw out there, is that the focus will not be so much on the teaching, but the focus will be on the learning. Because what we've noticed in the past several months is, as you say, kids are learning, but they're not learning because of uh, a worksheet that we put on a, uh, a platform and have them do. Mm-hmm. They're learning because they're, uh, they're free in ways that they haven't been free in years. And I think yes. we have to address that. And mm-hmm. so that informal learning, the, the, the learning that the kids do because they choose to learn. Um, my 13-year-old my is getting so good at chess. And I, I happily signed him up for chess.com, a monthly fee, because he wanted to learn more. He wanted to do the lessons. He wanted to have the games and the tournaments. And I, perfect. I can I can afford that, $5 a month. Um, go for it. Uh, and, you know, piano. He's learned to play the piano. They're, they're, they're learning to draw. They're, they're going out into the woods and exploring. They found a couple tree forts in the woods. Um, and we, we were able to you know, free ourselves for a couple of hours while they freed themselves for a couple of hours. And everybody was good with that. And I think that you can't capture that on a standardized test. It's a, you know, it's a social, emotional, if you want it, it's, there's, there's cognition. Yes. They're thinking and they're having to solve problems. Like, how are they going to get up that tree? No, more important. How am I going to get down? So, so I think the, the, um, the conversations need to, and, and I'm, I'm starting a podcast uh, with a, uh, a gentleman in the UK, Steve Hall, who's been writing about this for, for many years. And, and he has a concept. It comes from the design, um, design field. It's a metaphor called white space. And that's, the, you know, the, the, how much we crowd um, an image or how much we crowd an element um, and how much is left blank for our own imaginations. And um, what we're starting with is we're we're starting with uh, all of the all of the adjectives we use in terms of learning. So we have play-based learning, we have uh, you know um, 
personalized learning, we have uh, problem-based learning, we have all these sorts of things, but it, it takes us away from the conversation, the essential conversation about, well, what the heck do we mean by learning? Mm-hmm. And I think I'm hoping that that's the conversation we get back to well before we get back to standardized testing or how many kids are in a classroom. Mm. Oh, Stephen, that, that, that's so poignant. You know, you're, you're right that we have to go back with the lenses of how do we drive the learning, but not how do we drive the learning? How do we drive the learning together with students? Um, and, and what does that process look like? And that the end goal should not be standardized testing. Um, you know, I love the example you gave about the fort. Um, and and mm. there are so many children who are disconnecting from video games and, and, and doing things with their family and exploring and experiencing. And they're learning through those experiences. So why can't we take that into the classroom. And I know the last time you and I talked, we had a wonderful conversation around that, um, about taking the classroom outside of the classroom, um, mm-hmm. taking experience out, taking the learning outside of the classroom. Um, so I, I know there are so many decisions and we have an abundance of contingency plans right now, um, but we've, we've got to really look at what learning looks like when we go, um, when we begin the school year. So. I'm looking forward to um, the podcast that you and Steve Hall um, are going to be putting together. Is it already out? No, we're we're we, it's the most well planned podcast uh, because we we meet. Uh, he's in the UK, so we meet my time five o'clock uh, every Tuesday morning, and we've been talking about it. And I said, Steve, we just got to get to the episode. Let's do an episode zero. Let's just do it, and so we're just going to do it. But what we want to do is um, is create the space. Uh, and so we're, the podcast is designed to just present guests with a single word mm. and see where the conversation goes, because we like to, we like to embed our words in thinking and, to- and talking and what would happen if we just throw out the word and see where that conversation went. And, um, but this, it's, it's interesting when we, we, I'm so glad that we have a couple of months where officially school is out. I'm so glad for this, this household and households all across uh, your nation, our nation, uh, because we do need to step back and, and, but we need to be thinking about these things uh, intentionally and we need to think, be thinking about them. We need to lean into them. We really need to lean into the conversations and we can't, we can't uh, let, um, other people make the decisions for us. We can't let other people be having those conversations. Uh, and I'm say we as educators, because those conversations and, and the impact of those are going to affect not only us, but our, our kids, but that, that, that learning piece, um, should change the way we begin thinking about going back. And, and I, I would challenge listeners and this comes from the whole appreciative inquiry uh, mindset that uh, David Cooper writer, uh, not invented, but has kind of nurtured over the past uh, couple of decades. And if you think of a moment in the past three months, when either you or uh, a young person in your life really seemed to be learning, like really came away that they would say, and you would say, they've really learned something, something new. 
And then you step back and say, okay, what, what are the conditions that allowed that moment to happen? Who were the people involved? What were the resources? Um, what did you bring to it uh, as, as an adult? What did they bring to it as a, as a young person? Like really unpack that experience and then ask the question, what would happen if we allowed those conditions to really guide our conversations about going back? What would our schools look like? What would our classrooms look like? What would our communities look like? You know, I know they look completely different and, and for the better. And I, I hope, Stephen, so desperately that all of us are challenging ourselves to look through different lenses. But I have to think that somebody in and in, in, in not just from the global level, like in the states, we have school districts and school boards, but more intimately than that, at, at the school level with the principal and the teachers and the community that there are some catalysts within that entity that are saying, we've got to talk before school starts. We, we, we've had this momentum. We've done things different, differently. We've been innovative. We've, we've pushed ourselves beyond the limits. Now what? What are we going to do now? Um, and I don't think, I think there was some momentum around that conversation a few weeks ago, but then, you know, human nature, we're kind of losing our wind and steam and energy because we're finally at the summer. Most people are. But we have to continue to be forward thinking um, for the benefit of the students. What does it look like? And it can't look like it did previously. So it is incumbent upon us to, to be thinking and having those conversations. But the reality is, Tracy, that it, it could look like what it did before. We could go back and uh, take the path of, well, less resistant, least, I don't know if it's least resistant and just go back to doing what we were doing. And there is a danger that, uh, that we will. So how do you, how do you continue to hold the important questions in front of us and others and policymakers and people that are, will make the final decisions? I mean, what we know that we know that there are buildings out there that will not remain empty. They may be less populated. We know that there are kids that need to be somewhere because a big part of school, especially elementary schools, is taking care of kids while their parents go off and work. We know that, that, that that's the way things work. Mm -hmm. But within those parameters, what are, some of the, what are some of the things that might change? For example, here in Ontario, and I think across Canada, uh, there is a, a stipulation that uh, if, a, if a student in a school is uh, um, in a, a learning environment, they have to be in the presence of a qualified teacher. And lunch lunchtime is different. I mean, we have lunchtime supervisors, supervisors that are hired and, and paid for. Um, mm -hmm. But if you you can't you can't bring kids into a gymnasium and go through uh, you know phys ed activities without there being a teacher there. That's a that's a, a policy. Um, it's supported by our unions and and it's written into the inscribed into the understanding of school. Mm -hmm. But what if we loosen that a little bit and recognize that there are some great people in our community that may not be officially qualified teachers that might be able to help us re-envision not only physically, but um, conceptually what the school could look like? Um, you know, what other, what other procedures and policies and, and practices can we loosen up a bit or take another look at that might help? 
you know, Stephen, that that's really valuable because look at what we did during COVID-19. Parents became co-facilitators. We, we as educators, got very creative and, and used the community as, as a teaching resource. So why can't we continue that once we do return to school? So you and I talked last time about different seats at the table. So when I say that, I mean, just not the typical, the school board making the decisions like teachers and parents and and we and students like i know there's student council student leaders what did the kids get from all of this what worked what worked best for you we spend so much time talking about how we're going to do things but who's talking to the kids Mm -hmm. who's who's saying what was your experience like when we go back to school what is it from this that you would want, if anything, <laughs> to, to transfer over into school? And I imagine they'd have some valuable feedback for us, but we have to take the time to, to want to go there. You know, it, we were having this conversation at, at our house. My wife uh, is a teacher and she teaches visual arts uh, and, and she's been working like a lot on her class stuff and, and really uh, taking the lead on, uh, with our own children uh, as well. Uh, she's a great teacher. She has observed that the thing that she has liked the most and that I think our kids have liked the most um, are the teachers that, that um, set up the choice boards. Mm-hmm. So they had a, they had a choice. They have a number of choices and decisions to make around what choice they were going to uh, pursue. But that whole idea of choice, and we've talked about it, um, you know, conceptually for, for many, many years, you know, student voice, student choice. But I think that uh, teachers likely have seen a good response to that, and maybe that's that's something that uh, that we can build into just regular practice on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen, you just you just spoke my love language. Um, <laughs> you know, in in if you were to walk- your love language is choice. I know the five love languages. But I don't know if choice <laughs> is one of them. <laughs> Although I'd, I'd be willing to add that one. <laughs> Yeah, it's adopted. I adopted it. (laughs) But, you know, even in kindergarten, um, for our reading centers, for instance, my kids, most people would walk in and think, this is overwhelming. You're expecting too much of these kids. But my kids have the freedom every day to choose what reading center they want to be. And they even have the freedom, Stephen. It's so many things. Um, My classroom, it's a 100% flexible seating. And I mean, I'm talking futons and lofts. I'm not talking the traditional little, you know, it's, it's my house looks like a home, my house, my school looks like a home and and my classroom looks like a home. And that was my intent. I want them to feel like they're at home. And so every day they get to choose the seat they want to sit in and it's first come first serve. So what happened? My attendance improved, my tardies improved. Just so many positive things have happened by giving kids the freedom to choose. And so there is structure in my classroom, but I'm a very creative person. So why am I going to put these students in a box? Why am I going to say, you get to learn today what I want to teach. You get to learn this activity. You get to work with a partner in the activity that I chose for you. No, no, that that's, and my kids function so much better uh, socially, how they interact. It, it's such a uniquely happy and creative space because there is so much freedom of choice in my classroom. It is, 
I, I truly think it's the most beautiful thing that kids can experience, especially at a young age. And I would hope, what would it be like if that just continued through the grades? I mean, just feeling yeah. like kids would be better problem solvers. We have a couple of high schools in Canada that for years and very much under the radar have uh, been free choice uh, high schools. So kids come in, they, uh, at the beginning of the day, at the beginning of the week, at the beginning of the term, they decide, you know, the, their path uh, to learning, uh, there are classes that are offered. There are, um, and this is, this was before the internet. I mean, these schools um, really were in place before the technology to allow even more enhancements to take place um, came on the scene. That's a very long sentence. I don't know if I had the verb in there, but uh, anyway, uh, and it, it's amazing that, uh, you know, it's a regular neighborhood high school and this is just the, the commitment they've, they've made. And I always, uh, you know, I, I read about it from time to time and I think, why is it, why aren't more people doing this? And we do, I guess we call them alternative schools, you know, but they, they, um, you know, they're for different purposes and different kids. But um, I think you're onto something. I think, I think, you know, the, and, and how do other teachers at your school feel about the, the learning environment that you've set up? Uh, it's funny that you say that, Stephen. Well, everybody knows that I am that out-of-the-box teacher. And so there's so much, I don't know, grace is the wrong word, but there's this kind of thing. Yep, that's Tracy. Um, but I will say, especially with the flexible seating, when I chose to go 100% flex seating in my classroom, and added a hundred percent freedom of choice every single day. So you don't get to choose a seat and that's your seat for the six weeks. No, it's every single day you get to come in and you get to choose a different seat. And people thought I was insane. Um, they thought it wouldn't work. And the beauty was that next year, every single teacher on my grade level and multiple teachers in the building, some of them already had a little bit of flexible seating, but it, it's like it unleashed this, this, this passion um, that so many other teachers um, created Amazon wish list and went shopping on their own and, and created flex seating environments. And it, you know, my grade level, it's, it's beautiful and it's special because we kind of, we always live in each other's classrooms and we all, you know, we'll have six classes in one classroom. I know that sounds crazy, but we do it. And so for the kids to be able to go in and out of each of these freely thinking, free experience environments, it, 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 it was amazing. So, you know, like I said, initially I got some little heads tilted to the side, like, girl, what are you doing? But once once people started to see it, they're like, oh, this can really work. Um, so that's, Stephen, the beauty of educators being willing to um, step outside the lines and not be concerned about what other people think and push beyond our limits, which is kind of what we talked about when I introduced you, um, that even what we choose to do without even talking to other people can inspire them 
to push and go beyond their perceived limits. And so that's the beauty of challenging ourselves, which also connects to what we were saying about the research and stepping outside of the bubble, um, that, that expansive contemplation and that thirst for knowledge and research. So, you know, Stephen, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about this conversation because at first we were kind of ping-ponging here and there, but look at how it all tied together. We well, planned it, it all along. Know, <laughs> these conversations are kind of like this vast landscape, right? And and uh, you, you don't want to be the squirrel or the, or the person that sees the squirrel. The squirrel, squirrel. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to be that person. But no, I think there's uh, it it respects the fact that the this the landscape is rich and there's there's a lot that we need to talk about. And uh, I I I appreciate talking to you. Can, can I can I throw out the metaphor that's been uh, keeping me awake at night uh, just quickly? And maybe we can we can. This lead, I know you have to, you probably have to end this uh, conversation, but. Um, Toss it out there. What you got? So I've been thinking that uh, often, um, you know, especially in the space that social media, uh, I guess, invites us into, and I'm just going to take Twitter. Uh, and Twitter is such a, a torrent. It's a torrential stream. It's not even a stream, right? That's a, the wrong metaphor. And I'm thinking in order to feel good about the work we're doing, sometimes we get into the habit of, of sitting on the dock. And I'm not saying about, uh, talking about the Saturday Night Music show we do, we call it the dock. That's fine. But, uh, you know, you go down to a, a, a marina where people have boats. I don't, I don't have one, but I, I know people that do. And, you know, they go down on the weekend and they, um, you know, open some beverages and they sit on the dock or sit on their boat and they invite other people onto their boat and say, okay, next weekend you come onto my boat and I'll bring the, uh, I'll bring the beverages, you bring the state, whatever it is, you know, but some of them never actually pull anchor and leave the harbor. Mm -hmm. And so I've been aware of the times uh, in the past few weeks where I have just kind of stayed in the harbor and it's felt kind of good. But it, I think in order to deepen these conversations, we have to go out to the deeper water. And you're not going to find that in the harbor. You're going to find mm -hmm. it in the more open water, further away from the shore. And so that's the metaphor that I've been playing with the past couple of weeks. And it's the one I is inspiring me these days to do different things. Oh, Stephen, that's powerful. That, that, you know, it helps put in perspective where people spend their time and and wherein lies our comfort zones um, and and challenging us to to go further to go deeper I, I love that um, you know it, 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 as you were talking it reminds me of um, when I had when I had the stirring or, or this I don't know what you call it but when I had this desire this burning desire to um, kind of expand in telegogy and you remember when I came to you with what I was initially thinking and um, it was actually and I'll, I'll put it out there to listeners I, I kind of had in my head to have conversations with other podcasters on a regular basis. Um, and, and as we processed through that, um, you automatically, um, metaphorically <laughs> saw that staying in, staying within the harbor, staying in the, sh in the shallow water. Um, and, and while that was not my intent, I was super excited to get to interact with all of these different people and connect these people with listeners. Well, duh, they have their own podcast. So it's okay to have guests from time to time to have their own podcast, but 
go deeper, go into the deeper water, connect with other people, bring the listeners diversity. Um, so, so that's one example in, in my own very recent past where, um, because of our conversations, it inspired me to go into the deeper water, Stephen. So um, what keeps you up at night is not in vain. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Well, I'm glad. Um, it, it, and I'm, you know, for, for people that are, that are listening, that I'm not against harbors and I'm not against docks. Um, they're comfortable places to be. And we need that comfort uh, in our lives. Absolutely. We need the, that home base, right? But I think the growth takes place. And and I remember, you know, you remember those first moments as a kid where you went beyond the limits of where you were allowed to go for the first time, whether it was on your bike or, or just walking or in a car, you know, when you got your license, you just, and there's this, there's something that happens inside you. It says, Ooh, this is new territory. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that sense of, wow. I did this and and you feel brave and you feel courageous and you feel this, honestly, a sense of pride, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so I'm glad you took us back to that moment, Stephen. And again, that very example ties to what you were saying about um, the research and being better in the last five years than the first five years. And how do we do that? It's by being thirsty. It's by wanting to be that perpetual learner. It's by wanting to go deeper, go push yourself. So I am just loving how this all came full circle. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Well, I'm loving it as well. And so thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. Absolutely, Stephen. Thank you for our first conversation of Stephen on Saturdays. And we'll talk again really, really soon. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. You're welcome. We may have to work on that title. That's a little uh, Stephen on Saturdays. (laughs) Well, you remember what the first one was, but it was so long. It didn't fit with the flow of the rest ones. You're supposed to be in the situation with, in the situation room with Steve and Hurley on Saturday. (laughs) That's my, that's my, that's the title I love the most. (laughs) And, And the reason being, because you're, you're that, you're that thought leader. You're that, you're that deep thinker. And I just love our conversations. Well, I'll, um, I'll come when I call, I, I'll, I will come when I'm called, no matter what you call me. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And on that note, friends, thank you for joining us at Intelligogy, the podcast where together we are disrupting educational normalcy. Until next time.